Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Colossians again. The book of Colossians as we wrap it up this week. After 20 weeks in the book of Colossians, we come to our last message in the book, at least for this series. I'm sure we'll be back in it at some point. We come to Paul's closing remarks to the letter. And it just so happens that it's one of the largest sections of this letter to the church in Colossae. Let's start reading Colossians chapter 4 in this final greeting section begins in verse 7. God's word says through the apostle Paul, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, he's one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, this looks like just a list of a bunch of names scattered throughout several paragraphs. I mean, 12 names are mentioned here. Three other groups of people are mentioned in these verses. It looks a little bit like an acknowledgments part of a book right at the beginning. How many of you read the acknowledgments part of a book? It's a thorough reader who reads the acknowledgments, right? I usually read them when I know the author. I have a few friends who've written books, and so I'm a little more interested to read their acknowledgments um, because I might know people they've mentioned. I might know some of the people there that they talk about, and if so, then I'm more interested. Otherwise, I, I just, you know, Susie McDonald, thank you for typing. And it's just this, you know, it's personal to somebody, just not to most of the people who are reading the book. Well, in this end here of the book of Colossians, a lot of these names aren't very well known to us. Not in the church back then, and certainly not today. So maybe these verses don't seem to apply to us because they're overly personal for the first century and for Paul's context, him writing from Rome to these Colossian Christians. Some of it's just somewhat logistical communique between people long ago. So as far as sermons go, you might be saying, well, I guess we got to do this message. I mean, we got to say we finished the book, right? I mean, we've got 12 more verses to go. I guess we should wrap it up. We shouldn't leave it hanging. But it's not an exciting passage. Even from a preacher's standpoint, I'd have to admit that 
I wouldn't go looking to preach on a passage like this. I come to it having preached through the book, and I'm excited about it in part because I've been seeing themes develop in the book. But, but, but some churches are like this, where they decide what the, what's going to be preached on based on, well, based on anything, based on what seems to be stirring in the preacher's mind that week or a neat verse he came across last week or that kind of thing. And if that's the way you prepare sermons and think about where the direction of the preaching ministry goes in a church, then you wouldn't frequently go to a passage like this and say, ah, oh, there, that's it. I'm going to talk about all those greetings, mention all those names that no one knows about. And that's no small part of why we do preach through books of the Bible here because God has given us books of the Bible here. He hasn't just given us a, a giant book of various sayings of various times. He's given, he's given to us letters and gospel accounts written by a guy at this time with this context and to these people. And those details matter. Every bit of it's inspired. Each word is inspired, not just each passage. Yes, some passages take more work. Some passages require more thought or more Bible rummaging to figure out what they're saying, what they're talking about, cross-referencing, but each one is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16. So yes, the second half of Colossians 4 looks like just various names and greetings, but there are some wonderfully rich gems hidden in here, far more than I can show you even in this morning's study of it. I think the first gem can be seen by remembering the setting before we get into the outline you see in your sermon notes page. Remembering the setting, the theme of the letter, remembering the flow of thought that happened in this book because... The end of the book, which we're looking at today, is not unrelated to everything that's come before. Let me show you what I mean. Look back to chapter 1, verse 18. This is some review. Remember the major theme. Back from week 1, almost six months ago, where we saw that Jesus is the preeminent Lord and he's the all-sufficient Savior. Chapter 1, verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning Beginning of what? Beginning of everything. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one really to be raised in the new resurrection to come. That in everything he might be preeminent. That last little bit of verse 18 could be a tag that you put on any part of the book of Colossians. When he says to do this, you could put on the tag. That he might be preeminent in everything. He died in our place. That he might be preeminent in everything. He rose. He's making a new creation. That he might be preeminent in everything. That he might be over all and in all. That he might be first place in everything. Or like Yahweh God says of the, over and over again in the Old Testament, I am the Lord and there is none besides me. That kind of high title is given now to Christ specifically. So the letter takes turns, yes, and it introduces different themes, but this theme, the preeminence of Christ, is the thing that ties it all together. Let me remind you of the the outline of the book, the flow of thought here. 
You see in chapter one that really what's at stake is believing in Christ's preeminence. He's going to get to this thing in chapter two about defending Christ's preeminence, but, but first he wants to begin with the reality of Christ's preeminence in these things. In our experience, various ways he prays for them, in creation, that Christ is the creator and sustainer, and hence he's overall, he's controlling all. He's preeminent in our redemption. He's preeminent in the church. We read that. He's head of the church. And he's preeminent in Paul's ministry because his preeminence has got to get out there, right? There are people who don't know. There are people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And there are those who look to other gods who aren't really gods. And Christ tells Paul, even explicitly in the book of Acts, to go and suffer for his sake. Preach the gospel, spread it in the world. That's Paul's ministry. That's part of believing in Christ's preeminence. But then chapter 2 leads into the second section about defending Christ's preeminence. It's a, what we call a polemical purpose here. Polemical means you're trying to confront and, and uh, refute something that's false, wrong. And remember, Paul had heard from Epaphras that there had been some false teaching going around in the city of Colossae and the surrounding cities and churches And Paul writes with urgency, it seems, to get this thing off to tell them, don't look to another. Don't look to empty philosophy which rivals the preeminence of Christ. Don't look to Judaistic ritualism, going back to the shadows, as he puts it in chapter 2. No, Christ is preeminent. Those things pointed to him, and that's why they fade. That's why we put them aside not man-made rules. That would, be, that would be competition with his preeminence. He's the lawgiver. He is the word. So whether it's made up stuff about mysticism, which was happening in this false teaching around this city of Colossae, they were talking about how uh, I think the, the pathway to the angelic trajectories, how to advance through the angelic realm that we can't see is done like this and this and this. And they made up all this stuff. Made up stuff about mysticism, and they made up stuff about asceticism. Don't do this, don't do that. Things that God had not said not to do. Now remember the difference between indicatives and imperatives? We made much of that on one week a long time ago as we studied the book of Colossians. Most of us have a religion that loves imperatives. In fact, by nature, this is what we love. Imperatives are do's commandments. It's imperative that you do this. But Paul begins with indicatives, things that indicate, things that show reality, what is. So he begins chapter one and so much of chapter two, even as he's confronting what's going on there in that city of Colossae and the false teaching, it's indicative, right? It's not what to do. It's what is. Christ is all these things. He's preeminent. He's all in all. You have everything you need in him. Then he gets into imperatives. Not before. It must be rooted in the gospel. It must be standing upon Christ. It must be based on the realities that are now ours in this new creation that Christ is orchestrating in his redemptive plan. And then you get into how to live it out. Chapters 3 and 4, living out Christ's preeminence. It's not just receiving news and believing in that news, news of the gospel. 
we're to live it out. We're to live out his preeminence in a new identity. Chapter three, we're to seek things above, not things in the earth. We're to live out this new man that he's creating in us. Put these things to death. Leave those old things aside. You have a new identity. That new identity also means he's going to be preeminent in the church's unity. With these with whom you share this new identity and these new realities and these gospel blessings, you live in peace with them. You seek to love them. You put away wrath and malice and gossip and slander and you forgive like Christ forgives. Then he gets more specific. Notice he keeps getting more specific and he talks about Christ's preeminence in the home and in your workplace. He talked about husbands and wives at the end of chapter 3, children and parents, and then into chapter 4, slaves and masters. And then last week we saw him talk about Christ's preeminence in the proclamation. Pray for me, he said. Pray for an open door for the word. Pray that the gospel goes forth boldly and it comes out clearly. Why? That he might be preeminent in all things. You put that tagline on any part of this great book, including this last part, Christ's preeminence in service and in real relationships. Now, as Paul gets to this stuff at the end, it's not just stuff he has to cover. It's not just logistical information. It's not just niceties. Make sure you tell them I said hi so they're not mad at me and I didn't leave them out. He's acknowledging the realities of a new creation in Christ, of Christ reconciling all things unto himself, at least starting to. He's not done yet. What Paul's doing here in this last section, one commentator said, this is the boiler room of the New Testament. This is actually where it gets so very concrete. You think about it, he's been practical, but he hasn't been specific before this section. He's been practical about wives should live like this and husbands should do like this and kids should be like this and slaves and masters and workers and bosses, however you'd put it. But he hasn't named names yet, has he? Not really. He hasn't been so specific as to say, that guy, that flesh and blood guy who has ears to hear this and a mouth to speak it back. Now he gets very, very specific. And I think this is wonderfully rich and extremely helpful to see such glorious, huge, beyond our comprehension realities now fleshed out in the church with real people. That's what we're trying to do in a sense every Sunday. So you could call these guys partners in crime. What do I say partners in crime? Well, it's not just tongue in cheek. Christianity, as you know, is growing and increasingly becoming a threat to the Jews and to the Romans. And so Paul writes this from prison. At least one-fourth, the last one-fourth of the book of Acts is Paul in prison and on trial for the cause of Christ. Christianity is more and more becoming, well, just that, criminal, a punishable crime. And he writes this letter from prison. He even In verse 10, introduces Aristarchus as his fellow prisoner. He's not alone in being imprisoned. In verse 18, he ends the letter with those pregnant words. Remember my chains. So partners in crime is actually a pretty good way to describe these relationships, this fellowship, and yet the the risk involved in their work together 
for the cause of Christ. I think there are seven different themes here as Paul writes about and to these partners in crime. The first is sharing praise reports. Sharing praise reports. Look at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place. Tychicus, beloved brother, that's not physical brother, that's brother in the spirit, in the Lord. He's a faithful minister in verse 7, probably not a minister like a professional minister. You know, he does funerals and weddings. He's a, a minister, one who ministers. He is a servant. He's a fellow servant in verse 7. Everyone in Christ who is a servant of Christ is a fellow servant of Christ. We share that. Tychicus is a fellow servant with Paul. He's a fellow servant with the Colossians. They're all servants of Christ, like Onesimus. Now, in the book of Philemon, we learn about his story, the story of Onesimus. He was a slave of a man in Colossae, in the church in Colossae, it seems, and he left. He left him. He abandoned him. He ran away. He's a runaway slave, but he later becomes a Christian, and then he spends a lot of time with Paul, right? Paul takes him under his wing. He disciples him, we would call it today. He invests in him. At some point in in their relationship, Paul says, Onesimus, you know you got to go back. And so Paul's sending him back here. He's sending him back to his master. Paul writes a, a letter to that master. The name of the master is Philemon. He writes that small book at the end of Paul's letters. He writes this letter to Philemon saying, take him back and receive him back not only as a forgiven slave, politically, legally, you'd have the right to kill him, but don't receive him back. Not just as a forgiven slave, but receive him back as a brother, as a fellow servant of Christ. And so that brief backstory about Onesimus, you can see what Paul is saying in Colossians 4 about this same guy. Verse 9, he is a faithful and beloved brother. So, receive him. He's one of you. Paul's writing this to the Colossians. They probably have heard the story. This guy split. This guy left his master high and dry. He did something that was illegal, if not in some ways immoral. And Paul sends him back. He writes the church of Colossae and says, he's not just one of you in that he's from Colossae. He's one of you in that he's Christian. Treat him as such despite his past. So now Tychicus and Onesimus are the ones being sent to Colossae. They're carrying the letters, the letter of Colossians, the letter of Philemon, and probably also the letter to the Ephesian church. They're going back not just to carry letters, but to inform the Colossians about Paul and how he's doing, what's been happening. He refers to this part of the equation three times. Look at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. Okay, that's clear. Got it. Verse 8. I have sent him for this very purpose that you may know how we are. Okay, got it. It's repetitive, but I got it. Verse 9. 
Tychicus and Onesimus together, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Wow. And through that, they're going to, verse 8, encourage your hearts. So why is it so important that the Colossians are so informed, triply informed of what Paul's been up to, how it's going for him and what the state of affairs are? Well, of course, Paul wants them to pray intelligently. Remember, he's already asked them to pray. We saw that last week. Pray for me. Pray for boldness. Pray for clarity of speech. Pray for open doors for the gospel. Well, they can pray more specifically and more intelligently the more they know about specific people Paul's working on and specific roadblocks in the way, certain closed doors that Paul's hoping, hoping will be open soon. They have an interest in general in the progress of the gospel, not just with Paul, but in general. How's it going out there is what they want to know. Do you remember the first time you read the book of Acts? If you haven't, hopefully you will this summer with us. I remember the first time I read the book of Acts, and it was just this amazing drama, narrative of suffering and proclamation, persecution, conversions, and and, and glorious success of the gospel in in spite of all the, the hurt and suffering that's going on. It's wonderful. Well, the Colossians are going to hear that kind of thing from Tychicus and Onesimus because it's been happening. It's been living itself out in live version right in front of their eyes. They're living book of Acts, you could say, and they're going to come and tell them and encourage them in it, but they also have a care and concern for what's going on with Paul because there's a mystical communion between all Christians Now, this is something you can't graph. This is something sociologists, at least secular sociologists, don't write about. But it's there. The Bible is accurate and true. We call it the communion of saints. What it means is that because of Christ, there's a communion between Christians that transcends the need to get to know you time and in relationships measured merely in hours and experiences shared together. There is something shared that's so profound, so eternal, that experiences, yes, help, and yes, that's part of the equation, but we have such a head start, to say the least, in a relationship with a fellow Christian because of the realities that we share and the aims that we, we share in common with each other, the, beautiful communion of the saints is a reason why they care how Paul is. They've never met this man. He's never been there, it seems. And yet, they want to know because they care for him and he cares for them because they're in Christ. It's also important to know that Paul's desire for the Colossians to know about his welfare isn't selfish. It might sound like it, It's ironic, though. It's loving and selfless because he isn't seeking pity when he says, they're going to come and tell you all about me. They're going to tell you how bad it is for me. We're going to tell you just what you can pray for because it's so bad here. Just, just, I want you to know it's really, really bad here. Just want you to know that. Oh, Paul has bigger aims than just information, sharing pity, you know, complaining to people or gaining sympathy. What he has in mind here is their encouragement because they're concerned with him and he's concerned for them. He wants them to know about the things they're concerned about. Do you see that? 
It looks selfish to say, I want you to know what's going on with me. But instead, we should be eager to to talk to others about that. We should be eager to hear from others about that. Now, some of us tend toward one of those more than the other. Some of us do a whole lot of talking about what's going on, sharing burdens, that sort of thing. And not a whole lot of listening, not a whole lot of asking. It takes both. But I, I tend to be the kind that doesn't share prayer requests enough because I think, oh, no, that's talking about myself or, you know, that's, that's self-promotion, that's, that's putting myself out there. I don't need to talk about myself. And this passage this week has convicted me that that's probably not humility. That's false humility. Because Paul here is being humble as he says, pray for me, and they're going to tell you about what, what's going on here, and they're going to tell you about what's going on here, and they're going to tell you about what's going on here. Remember, three times. And he ends it with, remember my chains? Oh, Paul, it's all about you. No, all glory goes to God. And all dependence must be upon him. And Galatians 6.1 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To bear one another's burdens. Some of us need to get more burdens from others. Yank it out of them if you have to. And to bear one another's burdens, some of us more have to put other burdens, some of our own burdens on others and say, take this, help me, pray for me, listen to me. Can I just share this? Took long on that point, and we'll move a little quicker through the rest of these here, these themes, these gems, the end of Colossians 4. The second one is welcoming comforters. Verses 10 and 11, it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. The three guys mentioned here, they're comforters. Aristarchus, Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, and then a guy named Justice. He's Jesus, but when we say Jesus in the New Testament, it could get confusing if you didn't clarify, right? So he's Justice, or Jesus Justice, as some people refer to him. In ancient days. Okay, Mark, I think it's important to understand his reference here. You see Mark mentioned there? The cousin of Barnabas, the one who wrote the book of Mark. You have to know about how else Mark pops up in the New Testament. You might remember from the book of Acts that Paul and Mark had a bit of a falling out. Listen to it. Starts in Acts 13, something It seems pretty benign. Verse 13, it says, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John here is clearly Mark. Guy with two names, John Mark. Sometimes it's Mark, sometimes it's John, sometimes it's John Mark. He left and returned to Jerusalem. Wouldn't be that significant except Acts 15. Verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas, his, Mark's cousin, wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do, to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. 
But Paul chose Silas and departed. Now we don't know why Mark left in Acts 13 when he went back to Jerusalem. We don't know, is he missing mom's home cooking? Is he, is he just a homebody? Is, you know, is there a lady friend back in Jerusalem that he's missing? I, it, we're not told. Is it fear of persecution? Probably more likely. But what we do know is that Paul didn't approve of it. Paul saw it as yellow, right? He saw it as chicken. But by the time the book of Colossians is written, and it is written afterwards, Mark had obviously been restored. So in Acts 15, Paul says, he isn't going with us. We don't need that kind of baggage. I don't need to get out there in a ship and he misses his mom again. Uh Uh-uh. We don't need that. But now, as Paul writes Colossians, he's there. Mark is there with him. And that's why Paul has to say in verse 10, concerning whom you have received instruction, welcome him. Apparently, this was public. Apparently, this falling out was, was well known. And so was the restoration. Now, the restoration needed to be clear. And somehow, instruction had already reached this church in Colossae. They'd already been told. He's back on the team. He's doing good. That was a momentary lapse in discernment, but he's back on the team. You see at the end of Paul's life, he writes 2 Timothy, probably last. And 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul there is now separated from Mark, but not for bad reasons. And he writes to Timothy and says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. What a great story, right? What a roller coaster in God's plan. These men, with justice mentioned in other places as part of Paul's posse, you look at who's with Paul throughout these occurrences, these letters as they're written, who's with them in Acts, and you see the same names pop up. There aren't that many different names. But, but these, he says in verse 11, are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. He means the only ones of Jewish nationality. And these have been a comfort to him. Paul needs comfort. The apostle Paul needs comforters. We all do. I mean, if you've had a good comforting friend, you know how sweet that is. Someone who can speak direct words of conviction and sweet words of uh, of comfort to you, who knows you sometimes in some ways better than you know yourself. We're not told how these three men comforted Paul. It could be by them sharing some of the work. It could be by them meeting some physical needs. It could be verbal encouragement. As Paul needs a pep talk, as Paul is extra discouraged one day, and and they tell him, look, don't forget about the fruit, Paul. Don't look at the tares. Look at the wheat in God's crop. Maybe just being there. But I, however, they were a comfort to Paul. I want to be more of a comfort like like these men were to Paul. Third, you see this theme of struggling in prayer and service. Another encouragement for Paul, no doubt, was this guy Epaphras. He's one of you, he writes to the Colossians in verse 12, a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you. He is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Epaphras is an evangelist. He's probably the means by which the gospel went from the apostle Paul preaching in the Roman region anyway, to this specific area of Colossae and Hierapolis. 
in other cities. He's a messenger. He's a laborer. It says, verse 13, he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. He is a prayer. Verse 12 says he's struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Literally, it's he wrestles. I mean, this is an athletic word here. If you ever wrestled, like high school wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling, you know that's a workout, right? That's some of the hardest six minutes you'll ever do. That's intense. And he wrestles like that. They, that isn't us injecting our high school wrestling category to their world. That's where we get high school wrestling, right? From their world. That's running and wrestling with their only sports. They didn't invent balls yet, I guess. Um, so they know this term, wrestle. They can picture this idea of struggling and wrestling and exerting every muscle of your body to try to get this to turn over. He wrestles for them like that. And he wrestles with such a great prayer. Look at verse 12 in the middle. That you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Not just praying light prayers. I thank God for them. And then he lists them and he moves on. Not just praying that it goes well for them. Not just praying the prayer of Jabez. But praying that they would stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. A great summary of the way Paul said he was praying for the Colossians in chapter 1. I encourage you to go back and read that again and maybe even listen to that message again on the priorities of Paul's prayers here. Here we see those priorities microwave down to this nugget of how Epaphras prays for the Colossians. So pray like Epaphras and Paul. Pray like that. Labor like Epaphras and Paul. Sacrifice for others like Epaphras and Paul. And then honor and pray for Epaphras's around us who are messengers, who are doing things on our behalf for others, like those down in Guatemala this week. They represent us, bring us down to, to them. Pray for them as they bring Christ, as they represent this church to theirs. Fourth, we see the theme of sharing simple greetings. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician greets you. Probably Paul's physician in a sense, but maybe more importantly, he's there as a historian, right? He's the guy writing Acts. He greets you as he's writing stuff down, stories, scratching things out, rewriting things, figuring things out, even researching and interviewing people. As does Demas, the end of verse 14. Now this reference here is important. It's important because Demas pops up again in 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, remember it's Paul's last letter. And in verse 9, he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What heartbreaking words for Paul. We don't know for sure, but from this, it looks like Demas was of that third soil in Jesus' parable, the four soils. That third soil, he says in Mark 4, those are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. We don't know for sure if this was the case of Demas, but it sure might have been and it sounds like it was based on what we read in 2 Timothy 4. He could have done a mark, come back. I mean, Mark deserted Paul 
having loved this present world, perhaps. He came back. Mark is almost like a reverse Demas. Mark is, is afraid and maybe unwilling to sacrifice, and he turns back to comfort, only to be convicted and to come back to sacrifice for the gospel with Paul. Demas seems faithful in Colossians, but then we know he left Paul in love with this present world. Then there's Nympha, greet the brothers at Laodicea, and Nympha, the, and the church in her house, verse 15. What does it mean, the church in her house? Well, it seems that the early church had both large gatherings as space permitted. They didn't often have buildings this big. And they also had smaller gatherings of a church in various homes. So I don't think this is just a house church with no pastor. You know, the only ones in charge, Nympha, a lady. I don't think that's it. I think instead, remember, he's writing to the whole of the Colossians. There's this whole church of Laodicea. Those are big churches in a sense. And yet there are subsets of fellowship and partnership within those churches probably not unlike the way we have community groups that meet in so-and-so's house and so-and-so's house, and yet it's all under the umbrella of Desert Springs Church. But he just shares simple greetings. Why? Because these are real lives. Real lives are involved here. I mean, isn't Demas proof of that? Luke says hi. That seems so simple except he wrote two really big books of the New Testament. Demas, it seems like just a throwaway reference. Demas says hi. But then you read those heartbreaking words in 2 Timothy 4 that he appears to have left the faith having loved this present world too much. Make simple greetings to Christians with the assumption that something rich is going on here as we talk to each other, as we acknowledge each other in Christ. We don't know where people are in their faith. We don't know what temptations they're entertaining. We don't know what struggles they're wrestling through. Simple greetings are sort of the inroad to the highway of real fellowship. Then we see fifth, reading all the letters. Paul says, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And then see that you read their letter. A letter to the Laodiceans? Well, this is probably the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. You say, well, it says Laodiceans. I know, I, I could take some time to explain it. I won't this morning for your sake, because uh, 99% of you aren't interested in it. Um, the rest of you can look it up on the web and you know see at least the argument of how Paul is saying the church in Laodicea, uh, that's what we call the book of Ephesus. I think that's what he means, not some sort of missing letter that is out there that we don't have in our Bibles, a letter Paul wrote to the church at Laodicea. But he's just saying, get the letter from them, from, from those in Ephesus, get their letter, and then you give them your letter, and each of you read it. Why is that important for us today? We have them all together. You realize the beauty, glory, and the great benefit that we have of Bibles. It's all here in a book. I mean, it's not like Paul wrote the, the letter to the Colossians and they immediately had it printed up in little tracks. They're like, everyone take home your pocket Colossians today. Okay, got it. That's it. No. 
it was red when they were together. And that's all they had. Can you imagine how wonderful it would be to hear? There's another letter? Are you kidding? There's another letter? Get it. Hurry up. Let's get it fast. Write this one down so we at least have a copy of it. But, but then let's get that one from Laodicea or Ephesus and let's get it and read it. Oh, we have been blessed so much in our age to have the access to God's word that we have. Many of us have multiple translations. Many of us have different fancy covers on our Bibles. We get new ones sometimes just for added notes at the bottom or for a new design on the front. We have access in the web. We have access to audio. Give yourself to the, to the word of God. Thank God that we have the word and then give yourselves to both the hearing and the reading of God's word. Sixth, we see just a quick reference about fulfilling the ministry in verse 17. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. We don't know what this ministry was. Archippus must have known. Maybe others in the church did as well. But whatever kind of ministry it was that Archippus had been given of the Lord, it really doesn't matter. What we see for us is we, we clearly see every Christian has been given a ministry in a sense. Every Christian is plugged into the body. Each Christian does its own part. We serve the whole, right? Each with its own function, like Paul says in Romans 12 about the body of Christ and the different parts doing different functions for the benefit of Christ. We each have been given a ministry. We each need to fulfill it. You know that when Paul says, tell him fulfill his ministry, it must mean he had had waned, been distracted, started to doubt, began to fear. Paul says, fulfill it, finish it, keep going. The work is not done. Christian, you fulfill your ministry, whatever it is. And then lastly, this theme in verse 18 of remembering the cost. Paul writes this with his own hand, he says, which I think shows an extra measure of care and concern because it wasn't uncommon to use someone, a scribe, who would write down what the author was saying. Here he says, I wrote this with my own hand. He says, remember my chains. How much more do we need to remember Paul's chains than the church in Colossae did? We here in the West who live with such freedoms and ease. Remember his chains. Paul, here again, isn't promoting self. Paul isn't saying, don't forget about me. He's saying, remember the cost of proclaiming the gospel. Remember the persecuted church is what he's saying. Remember suffering. For us, it means remember Paul's suffering and and read through the suffering of the saints like those in Hebrews 11 where they're all piled together. Read biographies of suffering saints throughout the ages and find out about those suffering today for the cause of Christ in other countries and pray for them. Remember their chains because you don't have any. You don't have any. Well, I want to just point out one more gem here. I could have in my notes to go through sort of summary gems of what we've seen, but we don't have time for that. But I just want to point out this, that Jesus is building his church even in the midst of thorns and thistles and complexities and doubts. 
right? I mean, you've got relational tensions with Mark. He's restored, but I'm sure at times there's awkwardness, right? Where he stubs his toe and Paul looks over like, you're going to leave again? And he goes, I don't, you know, he talks himself out of some sort of snide remark, I guess. Relational tensions, long imprisonments, right? Seven, eight chapters of Acts devoted to Paul being imprisoned in these trials, going one after another, being useless as can be. Concerns about false teaching in Colossae and this new innocent church, no pastors ever mentioned. The one pastor that seems to be mentioned in church history, sort of just FYI, Onesimus, the returned slave. Church history says Onesimus became the pastor of this church, but you know Paul doesn't even address pastors here. What, you wonder what's going on with that. Yet he's so optimistic. He's seemingly so encouraged in Colossians 4. And almost everywhere when he writes. But his optimism isn't rose-colored glasses. It's not Pollyanna thinking here. Paul believes that Jesus is doing wonderful things, not just in spite of these thorns and thistles and heartaches and possible worries, but Jesus is doing wonderful things often through those thorns and thistles and worries, persecutions and question marks. Just as he is in your life too. He often advances the gospel through marks that go back to the field. And he often warns fledgling Christians with a wayward Demas. He will build his church. He is having his way. The gates of hell will not prevail against it even when it looks its darkest and weakest. Praise be to God.